1: You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: With
3: everything I do, the product is always the best it can be. And if it's not, I won't do it or put my name on it. And no matter where we are, whether we're in Hawaii, Bahamas, Barbuda, Portugal, or Nashville, we strive to be the best community in that area.
4: Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. On this episode, we have someone who practices magic. He creates whole communities and populates them with exactly the right people for each location. He's also used that magic to create one of the most successful tequilas ever. He's Mike Meldman, the chairman, founder of Discovery Land Company and co-founder of Casa Amigos Tequila. Mike was born in Milwaukee, moved to Arizona in the seventh grade, and set the world on fire as a kid. Straight A student who was active and successful in the top extracurriculars. He went on to Stanford and after college started as a blackjack dealer in Lake Tahoe and then began a 40 year career in real estate and development. He has created over 30 Discovery Land communities and they have all been creative breakthroughs and set a new gold standard. His tequila, which he launched with George Clooney and Randy Gerber, was an instant success and continues its meteoric growth. He's made a few movie and TV cameos, and even has a dish named after him at the famous Craig's in L.A. But most important, he's a good guy who everyone loves and respects. Mike, welcome.
3: Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that.
4: Mike, we've got lots to dig into today, but I want to start with a warm-up, you in 60 seconds. I'm ready. Do you prefer golf or football?
3: Playing golf and watching football.
4: Comedy or drama? Comedy. On the rocks or straight up? On the rocks. Early riser or night owl? Both. Introvert or extrovert?
3: A lot of people think introvert, but mostly extrovert.
4: Arizona or California? California. Crypto or dollars? Dollars. Tequila or mezcal? Tequila. Casa Amigos or Casa Dragones?
3: I love them both, but I'd have to say Casa Amigos.
4: Honey, truffle or barbecue?
3: Any truffle with real truffle.
4: Text or call? Text. Okay, it's gonna get a little harder here. Childhood hero. My grandfather. Smartest person you know. Bill Campbell. Favorite Discovery Land community. El Dorado. First job.
3: Courtesy clerk at Lucky Stores. <laughs> secret talent? It's a secret.
4: Oh that's good enough. Favorite movie? Ooh, Pulp Fiction. If you could have just one superpower, what would it be? teleporting. Let's get started. You founded the Discovery Land Company in 1994, and your website defines the company as a U.S.-based real estate developer and operator of private residential communities and resorts with a world-renowned portfolio of domestic and international properties. Your communities include Bakers Bay in the Bahamas, the Summit in Las Vegas, Iron Horse and Yellowstone Club in Montana, El Dorado and Los Cabos, Mexico, North Shore Preserve in Hawaii, and obviously lots of others. These are all characterized by the A-crowd resonance, and those are creatives, business types, tech, remarkable blend of people in a sort of remarkably casual yet well-designed surroundings. And you have service that puts most upscale hotels and resorts to shame. How do you describe that vision that brought you here, and how did you develop that idea?
3: The vision came when I bought my first project in Arizona, and I wasn't a golfer, I never played golf, and I was never a member of a country club, so my first project I did was Estancia in Scottsdale, and the whole project kind of just came about a little more organically because I did it on the way I wanted to live. And at the time I was really young, maybe 34, 35 years old. The communities are very casual because when I started them, I didn't grow up with a golf background and a country club background. So I didn't understand the formalities of it, like how to dress and how to act. And so I would bring my kids, they're 34 and 32 now, but when they were five and seven, I wanted them to learn how to golf. So they would golf as an adult because I didn't know how to golf. And I remember taking them to Estancia and said, hey, you guys got to put on a colored shirt. And they said, I don't want to put on a collared shirt. I said, well, put it on. And they said, no. And so my attitude was, well, I'm here to have fun with them, not to fight with them. So I said, OK, don't wear one. What do I care and so we went out in shorts and a t-shirt. So that's kind of how the casualness of our places came about. And then it turned to kind of be disruptive to the to the golf industry. Because I also would blast rock and roll on the driving range. Because again, I'd be on the driving range. I don't really like golf, but I like rock and roll. So I'd listen to that. We have comfort stations on the golf course, which are little... Many restaurants and bars, so when you go into those, you can get a margarita, you get ice cream, you get pizza, burgers, basically whatever you want. and those started when my kids were young again. they didn't want to golf, and I was trying to make them golf and learn how to golf. and so it virtually started by me putting a cooler on a tea box of Cokes and candy bars, and my kids would just run to the tea box drink a Coke, eat a candy bar, try to hit a ball, and run down the fairway to the next tee box to get another Coke and candy bar. Now, probably not the best parenting idea, but it was a good golf idea. And those coolers have turned into those comfort stations. And so the whole relaxed atmosphere on a golf course I think has been revolutionary for golf. And I think it actually, is important to help grow the game of golf, because golf courses can be intimidating if you don't know the rules. So I tried to take that out of it. And then I think our service level is so much better than most places. Everybody knows each other. The level of service becomes more intimate. So I think the members in the community feel more vested in it. People are very happy to be there, appreciative to be there, and respectful, not only of one another, but the staff.
4: So when you first started this, did you get pushback from people, though, of going to that limit, or did everybody sort of embrace it and get it intuitively?
3: I think everyone got it, but as the company grew and we grew, kind of the legend of the conversation grew, and so every new project and everyone who works for me and is on the project they want to make the next one better better and better and so fortunately i've been doing this so long that we keep improving on the product so it's almost become competitive amongst general managers of different projects to make sure they have the best food the best ideas and they push it to the best and so it's it's rather competitive and things just get better for the members
4: Let me talk about food for a minute because we're talking about comfort food. And yet at every one of your communities, you've also got some spectacular high-end food. How do you think about food and what role it plays? And then also talk a little bit about design, because you also have remarkably cohesive design for communities where people build their own homes.
3: One of the reasons why I've been so successful is that the whole community is integrated together with every aspect of it. We're very active, obviously, on the design side, because one of our main pillars is to embrace the local culture and environment. Everything we do, we're trying to be authentic to the place we're at. And so sometimes it might be my version of authenticity for the place, like at Kukio in Hawaii, I wanted romantic Hawaii. So I remember the architects bringing me all this stuff. Well, this is romantic. Hawaii And it was all like temptation style type of housing because that's what the king lived in. And you know, so that was their interpretation of luxury and romance. And I said, well, my romantic vision of Hawaii is Kona Village, because Kona Village was like huts with thatch roofs. It came out beautifully, authentic, and we're one of one. There are a lot of, let's say, hotel companies where you could build a hotel in Maui and it's basically the same hotel they build in Cleveland. And that seems just too easy. So we literally customize every building, every project, you know, for the environment and culture that it's in. On the food front, food has become a huge part of our communities. We have gardens and farms and even zoos at all our projects in order to get fresh vegetables and Organic produce because like Bahamas, you know, you buy your food from Cisco or one of the food purveyors and we go, okay, let's get organic lettuce. Well, by the time it shows up at Bakers Bay, it's soggy and brown. So we had to grow all our own food in order to provide the quality that we want and that the members want. So all that stuff evolves as we go. Today, food's a big deal. Organic's a big deal. People want to live a healthier lifestyle. So it's really become a focus for all of discovery.
4: You don't sell land and build infrastructure. You curate and build communities. What is the key to building a community? That's not an easy task. How do you make that
3: happen? I always tell my sales guys and all our people, you got to get the first buyer. So it's really important to establish that first person with our vision of how we see the community building out and becoming. And then as people come in, it obviously changes a little bit of personality because in these communities, they come from all walks of life. And so when you're at Yellowstone or McKenna or Baker's Bay, wherever you are, there's always interesting conversations. It's always easy to make and new friends. If you buy in one of our communities, you make new friends.
4: So your communities basically allow people to disconnect from the world. How do you think about online, offline, and the role your community plays in people disconnecting? And also, how does it relate to the electronic world?
3: I think you know, since COVID and with COVID, it gave people a comfort level being out of the city that they live. They want to be in a secure community where they know their neighbors. And you could really work from anywhere now. And the technology is amazing. Like Zoom has been an amazing feature for me because I'm in these great resort communities all the time around the world. But as long as you have that, I could have real-time conversations and do productive business with people all over the world. So I think the change with COVID of not necessarily being in an office, but still being able to be productive and communicating has been beneficial to all our places. Because once people started moving around in COVID, almost every available house we had in any community sold.
4: So you make it sound so logical and so simple, yet you really do stand alone. Why haven't others been able to replicate what you do? What are they missing?
3: It's just hard. It takes a lot of money to do these deals. We have the Rolodex and membership roster. So if we start a deal, we could have 20 to 30 people in it before we even start. And that really de-risks a project. And so if you don't have the Rolodex and you don't have the know-how and the brand to have people have confidence in you to buy before there's anything there, it's impossible. You know, I look back at how I started, and like Kukio, Kukio is my number one project because it helped make me become the the person I am professionally. And we had some of the toughest buyers ever. And you know, these guys would come and basically interview me, and I would explain the vision, and they go, "Okay, great." And I look back, I go, "Okay, great." I obviously believed that I was going to do it and accomplish it, but for them too was a pretty big leap of faith and now fortunately all those people who did all these projects are happy because they've all exceeded everyone's expectations on what they thought it was going to be and prices have gone up so much that everyone is obviously so happy not only from the money side of it but also the social side of it so you know, it's really helped people's lives and people who have everything and that the only thing they can't really give to themselves is the community we provide. And so I get a lot of, thank you, Mr. Melvins, for helping me and helping my family and bringing us together and giving us a place where we're comfortable and relaxed and can hang out. And so, you know, that's been a really fun and rewarding part of the business.
4: More on math and magic right after this quick break.
1: So follow The 7 right now.
5: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined.
2: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
4: Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Mike Meldman. Let's go back in time. You were born in the late '50s, grew up in the '60s and '70s in Milwaukee and Arizona. Can you paint the picture of your family, those places, and that time? What shaped you?
3: Growing up in Milwaukee, I had close friends who are still literally my friends today. I had a great family life. My dad was basically there when I went to school. When I got back from school, he coached me and. Little League and football. We watched Packer games together. My mom was always there. She was a housewife and mother. My sisters are all about a year and a half from each other. So we we're all close and all our cousins were all the same age. And every Sunday we'd go to grandma and grandpa's house. We we're very middle class, happy, had a great life and childhood. And I moved to Arizona when I was in seventh grade. And when my dad said we're moving, I didn't really think twice about it. i go, great, warm weather. I was a huge sports fan, so, you know, started becoming a Suns fan and ASU fan. And I had a lot of friends and had a great time in Arizona. And part of what's inspired me to do the different things in our projects, like one of my early projects was in Whitefish, Montana, called Iron Horse. And so up in Whitefish, there's a lake, so you could water skiing, wakeboard. You go whitewater rafting, you go fly fishing. My kids, again, were young, so I wanted them to be able to do all these things. Because as a kid, I never did any of those cool things. So they were surfing, and paddleboarding and outrigger canoeing, and free diving, and scuba diving, and snorkeling, and doing all this stuff. And so it inspired me to do things that I didn't do as a kid, and I wanted to provide it for my kids. And then it became a big part of all these clubs. And so I think that's another thing that we stand out. You know, we really have activities and activations for the families.
4: You were a straight A student, a jock. You worked in a supermarket. You ran the school's Key Club and were elected governor of the Key Club for a three-state region. You were selected to attend Boys State, which back in those days was a really big deal, hugely prestigious educational program of government instruction for high school students. And you were elected governor there too. And then you even got invited to Boys Nation, Washington, D.C. What does all this tell us about you? Well,
3: <laughs> yeah, Boys State, they're both very prestigious. But once I got elected Key Club governor, it's a pretty big deal because Key Club is a service organization it was a good cause. We did a lot of cool things. Like I remember coaching Special Olympics. So you did cool stuff like that, met a lot of people. So when I got to Boy State, and Boy State is kind of meant to be the best of the best. You create these mock governments. And I was one party, and the other candidate who was running for governor was my roommate and my best friend from my high school. And usually you win by four or five votes. But I won by like 80 votes. But the good news is he was able, as losing candidate for governor, he went to Boys Nation with me. So we had a blast. It was 1976. It was the bicentennial year. And so instead of a week in Washington, D.C., it was three weeks and did a mock government. We toured all through D.C., met our congressman, met the president, it was President Ford at the time, met senators. It was a pretty cool experience that lasted three weeks. What
4: lessons did you learn from your childhood that you still use today? And anything in this that you pass along to your kids as these discovered truths?
3: I had a very loving family. My dad and my grandfather are probably the biggest inspiration in my life, just how much time they spent with us, how loving they were. I grew up, being nice to people because I was taught that integrity and character was always instilled in me by my dad and my grandfather they're great examples cuz everyone liked them the kids would wanna come hang at our house cuz my parents were nice and you know my dad was like I said our little league coach and every person on our team you know loved and respected him because he was just such a good guy and actually coached us and like the kids who weren't very good he would prop them up and make them feel good and taught me to protect someone who didn't have the strengths you have and so my kids you know they grew up in a different environment with different resources that i grew up and they are literally the most unentitled humble people you'll you'll ever meet and i give obviously credit to me and their mother but i really give the credit to my dad and my grandfather because they really instilled this genuine quality to people and maybe it's a midwest thing but it worked i think it's made me the man i am today
4: after college you think about law school but you don't go Instead, this recent Stanford grad becomes a blackjack dealer. Then you get into commercial real estate, Fremont, California, where you realize maybe you found your calling, and you decide to go be your own developer. And your first project, I understand, was a 300-acre site in Portola Valley, California. And I've seen you quoted as talking about what you learned from that first one. Can you give us some of those stories?
3: Yeah. I went to Tahoe Duck Blackjack and the reason i didn't go law school is because i bombed the lsats might have got my name right (laughs) i don't think i got any other question right so i went with a couple buddies to tahoe to help blackjacket harris got into real estate as a broker did really well decided to start buying land and entitling it on my own because what i didn't like about being a broker you didn't really have control over anything so I, i went out and me and a buddy bought the 300 acres in portola valley i didn't obviously have the money to buy it but i raised it through friends it was 300 acres it was zoned for 32 homes and so i go okay this is easy we'll just submit a you know a map and sell them and make a bunch of money and i'll be rich so what happened is the land was located in portola valley which is a basically suburb of Palo Alto, right outside of Stanford. And so every environmental constraint you could think of this property had. San Andreas Fault ran right through it. They had kind of a big hillside, which had all these landslides. There was a wildlife corridor, there is biological issues. And so I had to learn how to develop through the environment which today is the way to go. But back then, it was hard. It was difficult. It was <laughs> it was frustrating. It taught me how to develop properly, because most developers buy land, masquerade it, and throw up as many houses as they can. What this experience taught me was that, okay, well, you build the roads along the natural contours of the land. You keep as much vegetation as you can. You don't clear cut you don't cut down trees you put houses you know on the geologic solid part of it where landslides aren't gonna slide down and hit because they could actually map the landslides and how far they're gonna move and things like that so i learned how to develop through the environment and intellectually it made sense to me too because as you develop if you build the roads on the contour and if you don't cut down trees you save so much money because in residential development all the money is really spent in mass grading and re and buying landscaping so if you don't mass grade you don't grade anything and you don't really cut down trees except for what may be in the roadways and you move them You save money. So it made intellectual sense to me that this is the right way to develop anyway. Let's
4: jump over to one of your other huge successes, Casa Amigos Tequila. As a co-founder of Casa Dragones, I do have a special appreciation of what you, George, and Randy built. It was an instant success. You had a meteoric growth, still continues. And certainly the billion-dollar price tag proved how successful it was or opened a lot of people's eyes about tequila, Where did the idea come from and what was the biggest surprise in building that company?
3: So George, Randy, and I are all obviously friends and have been friends for a long time. We drank a lot of tequila. We didn't necessarily like any tequila the best. So we came up with the idea to do our own. We probably did 800 samples. I think we got it to where we all thought it was perfect. So initially we did it just for ourselves. And I always said, you know, between all my clubs and between Randy's bars, he had bars at the time, which he obviously had to sell for the tequila, and everything George would drink, we could become a successful company. And so we went to Southern Wine and Spirits, they tested it, and they liked it. And so I remember them telling us, well, do you guys have a Blanco? And I remember saying, no, we don't have Blanco, we drink Reposado. And they go, "We should have a Blanco. And I go, why? And they go, well, 85% of the tequila market is Blanco. I go, well, let's do a Blanco. <laughs> and so we did a Blanco, we launched, and they said, if you could sell 10,000 cases your first year, it'd be a huge success. And so George, Randy, and I, we produced the 10,000 cases. We went on a road show to Vegas, Miami, and Dallas, and we sold about 10,000 cases. And just literally took off from there. We knew we had something because we were serving it to all our friends. Everyone loved it. So when we sold the company to Diageo, we were doing 167,000 cases a year. We are now doing over 300,000 cases a month. And we just finished our last fiscal year and we're at 2.7 million cases. And I think next year will be closer to four million. So we still run it. We're a wholly owned subsidiary of Diageo, and I think we're the third largest spirit brand in the world right now.
4: It is such an amazing success story, and I think for you, especially having this sort of second entrepreneurial success, must tell you something about yourself, and certainly puts you in a category of very few. With Discovery Land Company in Casamigos. You have proven you're a master with the high-end consumer. Auto companies, software, travel, telecommunications, retail, all want that customer. But few have succeeded like you have. What are they missing?
3: I think it's really the brand, right? The power of the brand that I created because people trust me. People made money in almost every lot we ever sold. We execute. We're vertically integrated. So we design everything. We operate everything. We build everything. So we actually really know what's going on. And I think with Cosmigos, the product was just good, right? If the product was bad, no matter who was behind it, it wouldn't work. And so I think with everything I do, the product is always the best it can be. And if it's not, I won't do it or put my name on it. And no matter where we are, whether we're in Hawaii, Bahamas, Barbuda, Portugal, or Nashville, wherever we are, we strive to be the best community in that area. You have to have a good product.
4: If you could go back in time and give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be?
3: The only advice I'd probably give myself is just be patient. Because people always ask me like, hey, did you know this was going to be so good? I'm like, yeah. I mean, somebody had to, right? There's always someone driving and striving to make these places great. And Discovery just happens to be me because it was my brainchild. And so the nice thing is even 40, 30 years later, you know, I still have that same drive. I've learned a lot. So I think every project, we get better, better and better. I still strive to create the best product, to be the best at what we do and I really never lost that, but at 21, I didn't know that. (laughs) And so I always knew I would be successful, but I just didn't know what scale or what magnitude or what impact it would make to people. And so at 21, you know, I'd probably just tell myself, be patient.
4: We end each episode of Math & Magic by saluting the best of those folks who have that special skill in business for the analytics, And for those who have the special skill for the innovation, creative, the promotional, the magic of business, who would you put on the pedestal best in math and the best in magic in the business or marketing world?
3: I'd say math would be Steve Jobs and magic would be Phil Knight. Been fortunate to meet them both. And I think they both inspire many people, the whole country, the world.
4: Well, Mike, you have inspired a lot of people. you built communities that bring people together. And in the process, those communities have really defined you. You've really had a unique life, definitely one of a kind. Thanks for sharing your insights and experiences today.
3: Well, I appreciate it, Bob. Thanks for having me.
4: Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Mike. One, change the rules. At Discovery Land, Mike has prioritized inclusivity with laid back luxury and no fuss golf courses. The ways he's broken tradition is the reason his properties stand out. Two, work with your environment. While developing his first Discovery Land property, Mike realized he needed to work with, not around, the key features of the environment. We should apply this lesson when making changes to the landscape of our industries. It's important to preserve what works. Three, offer more than products. At Discovery Land, Mike is not just providing four walls and a roof, he's providing community. That's something that can't be easily recreated by competitors. I'm Bob Pittman, thanks for listening.
1: That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman special thanks to susan ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent which is no small feat our editors are derek clements and emily marinoff our producer morgan lavoy our executive producer nikki etor and of course gail raul eric angel noel and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears until next time